Carice Hendrick. And I'm Brett Johnson. And we're both anti-fraud experts. But with very different sets of experiences. I've been in the anti-fraud space for well over a decade, working with hundreds of the biggest online companies in the world to help them prevent payment fraud. And I'm the guy responsible for a lot of the financial cybercrime we see today. United States Most Wanted, refined modern cybercrime as we know it, and I escaped from prison. Prison, yeah, don't worry, they got me and they sent me back. The surprise, though, the surprise in all of it is that a lot of people out there cared enough about me that I was given the opportunity to turn my life around. Today, I work to protect businesses and consumers from the type of person I used to be. Welcome to the Online Frogcast. To me, to me, I mean, we've got all these problems right now, but one of the major issues is fake news. Yeah. You know, we've got a lot of problems with that. And before I dive into bitching about the types of fake news that are out there, <laughs> because I've got a lot of bitching to do. I know. Despite, despite the text messages I sent last night urging you oh, to yeah. try to keep it on yeah, track, I, I like, knew nah, that that was, nah. I, I, <laughs> I at least need to feel like I tried. <laughs> <laughs> you did try. You did. <laughs> I get an A for effort. <laughs> but this, this is the topic of today is trust and safety. Yeah. And trust and safety should be handling a lot of this fake news content. And you you mentioned to me, let's do a trust and safety episode on Twitter and Facebook. Well, I I was like, oh, I know. God, yes. Oh, I knew exactly. I knew. I was like, he's gonna think I think it's his birthday. <laughs> yes, um, I was. That would be that would be a topic I would choose. You know, for I you know. To that I'm like, oh my, oh my. <laughs> It doesn't mean you're rubbing off on me. It means that I really see the role of trust and safety playing out in major headlines all over our country and I'm sure uh, worldwide as well right now with all of this unrest. There's just so many things that have happened in the last several weeks in the U.S. to just make it feel like it's at a fever pitch right now for so many things. I mean, and and don't forget, there's still an international pandemic that hasn't been solved going on. Um, And so... There are so many layers and there have been so many examples of trust and safety policies and how they they really influence everyday life as well as politics and celebrities and, and all of that. So um, I think to start, it's good to kind of explain the difference between trust and safety and fraud. So, um, you know, for years and years and years, online companies have had fraud teams. Um, I started seeing them around early 2000s. Um, Really, the longest veterans in here probably, you know, in this industry probably started in online fraud in the, you know, 2001, two, three, which is ironically, you know, when you started <laughs> your That's side right. too. Hmm, not, not a coincidence. I will say um, we had a trust and safety team long before these legitimate companies. Did. Oh, yeah. For your forums, right? <laughs> exactly. Like deciding what, yeah, actually, I, I believe that. That's funny, actually. Um, yeah. So what happened was you know, the internet and online commerce, e-commerce, et cetera, really up until 2008, 9, 10, that era was really separate from real life. So, you know, you could order, per- the only thing in real life that would happen from something you did online was 
obviously if you met someone on match.com or, you know, like that, right. Or get ordering packages. Um, but you'd also play video games or talk on chat, you know, and you might talk on the primitive social media, like MySpace, um, with people that you knew in real life, but it wouldn't have a ton of real life consequences. In 2008, 9, 10, um, that era, that was when Uber and Airbnb and, um, Twitter and Facebook and, uh, all these other companies that have come out of marketplaces and um, the gig economy and sharing economies, et cetera. And that was when companies started to look at how they were, how they were protecting their users as, as well as just consumers. And up until that point, fraud teams were really focused on credit card fraud. Um, they also kind of had a harsh connotation within a company because they were often seen as sales prevention and they were really preventing sales, not enabling them and, and all of that. And so I don't actually know which company came up with it first. I, I know uh, PayPal, Uber, Google, like I know Facebook, I know they all have them. I, I don't know who came up with it first, but it definitely started in Silicon Valley. And really trust and safety teams, the actual aspects of their jobs are very specific to what the company provides. But at the end of the day, the reason why they're called that, and then also just kind of their focus is a little bit different. They're really there to ensure that they have the continued trust of their consumers and their customers. The reason why we're talking about this now is because the trust and safety policies from Twitter, from Facebook, from Snapchat, and others as well are all under a microscope right now all because of what one of the companies did. Well, if you make a policy, what's the impact to the everyday person? What's the impact at a global scale? What's the impact of the headlines in the news? You really have to think those through when you do a policy. I should also say this. I have 100% had conversations with the majority of these companies about trust and safety topics specific to content and in some cases specific to the president and the elections, et cetera. I am going to do my best to not uh, identify those companies, but I may be some of the things that they've told me may be um, included in, in some of what I say. You know, I did my research today looking up. I want to make sure I had all the terminology correct and everything else because mm -hmm. we know that Brett Johnson is not the corporate guy. <laughs> <laughs> Which is part of your charm. Don't get me say, wrong. I am so charming. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> I say charm in like a loose way. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> but I, I was looking up, you know, I looked up some trust and safety articles. And one of the blogs that I read is written by, I don't know if you know him or not, but Kenny She. He has this a really nice thing that I think the consumers that are listeners would appreciate mm. just to kind of give them a perspective of what trust and safety yeah. is from, from their side. So he says that trust and safety is a term commonly used on platforms where people interact. It is the foundation to enable unfamiliar or total strangers to treat each other peacefully and fairly. Trust to some extent is a perception, but its basis is safety. Only when mm. people feel confident and comfortable about the safety of their presence and activities. In other words, there is no negative implication or loss to themselves. Then they trust the platform and other people on the platform. Mm. I just wanted to mention that just from the consumer side so that they understand that this also affects you guys. Yes, it does. Yeah. <laughs> so, and I appreciate, hey, I know you've met Zuckerberg and Dorsey and I'll right out of the gate, I want to tell you that I, I respect Jack Dorsey a hell of a lot more than I respect Mark Zuckerberg. I think anyone that follows you on any social media for 
platform, including LinkedIn, or that has listened to any podcast you've done on this one or Anglerfish would already know that. That's that's true. <laughs> Probably anyway. I mean, I would assume. Maybe and not. Anyone who listened <laughs> to my podcast last week knows that I called both of them. I gave them both an award called the Assholes of the Week. Oh, geez. <laughs> I actually <laughs> haven't listened to that one yet. So... And that comes from, that comes from first, you know, Zuckerberg refuses to take down the violent tweets of Donald Trump. Once the looting starts, the shooting starts, which is a, a quote from a known racist back in the day. Twitter takes it down. So I, I guess that Dorsey's not as big an ass as Mark Zuckerberg. Of course, now Twitter did allow and still does allow the fake Antifa tweets to be out there so actually let me correct you they didn't take it down they blurred it and they, they said that it. they said that the tweet was in violation of their policies but that they also felt like there was a um i don't have the verbiage but that there was an important that, that it may be important to society for it to still be viewed or something like that hmm. um so they they put parameters on it it, it wasn't a full takedown um, that that it should be said that someone created a, another account and just um, copied everything that Trump was saying and their account got <laughs> shut down. Um, so it's very clear that he's getting special treatment. I mean, despite him feeling like he doesn't, um, he I know for a fact that if he did not have the position that he did in politics or government, his account would have been shut down before he even became president. But you see, that's that's my issue with this. Okay, it's not. Oh, just, I, I'm not saying it's right. I'm just no, yeah, and, yeah. <laughs> and not not even talking about Trump. But it's a lot of the content that's out there. For example, we had a white supremacist group that was acting like Antifa on Twitter, yeah. and the only reason it was taken down, the only reason is because Trump Jr. retweeted it. Hmm. It was it was allowed to stay up until that point. Once Trump Jr. sends it out to his millions of listeners, the acolytes, at that point, Twitter's like, oh, I guess we can take this down now. So I'm not Maybe. sure... Because, it, I mean, well, Twitter can't look at every single tweet, right? So, um, you know, companies like this that have user-generated content, they have, they have different layers. So there's different technology out there generally using machine learning. Um, yes, I do know what they use, but that I'm not saying it here. Um, but they, um, you know, to help them bring to light the things that they should be looking at that may be in violation of their policies. Um, then they also have people who are manually looking at it. And I would imagine that there is a special team that is kind of charged with looking at the top 10 people that are tweeting um, at the political level in the U.S. And that would be Trump and his family and, and a few other cabinet members probably. Sure, but at the same time... They, and so they just may not have known it until it got to that level, right? Because there's no one person actually looking at it manually. That's what I was trying to say. Sorry. You're <laughs> I right. I realized it didn't it, make sense. <laughs> it, it may be. It may be, except Twitter acknowledges that the Twitter feed made its way, that news made its way over to Facebook. Mm -hmm. And then they banned the account after that. So at some level... They knew about these fake Antifa tweets that were going out. But we've seen this time and again, right? It's not, it, it, unless your name is Trump, we're going to take it down. Or maybe we won't, depending on the content. It, I guess it depends on how many, how many clients, how many customers that we're going to upset as to whether it stays up or not. 
Well, time and time again, the biggest rule and the biggest thing that um, you have to take into account whenever you're considering content moderation on a platform like this, and I'm talking about from the trust and safety uh, perspective, is context, right? You could have two different things saying very similar. You could have two different tweets or posts, et cetera, saying very similar things, but very different context. Who is posting it? What is their position? Like, there's so many other things because you can't just you can't just have hard and fast rules. So there is this nuance that has to be considered. And um, I do know that there was a lot of tweets that did get flagged by Twitter because it was bot traffic, um, you know, trying to incite violence and, and trying to credit it to the Black Lives Matter, uh, you know, um, movement. And that the educated guesses is this looks a lot like something that would come from Russia, um, which there's a lot of countries that want to sow chaos here. They, they know that if there's chaos here, they're not going to be paying attention to international politics. Um, They know that it's, you know, going to exhaust resources and attention and energy. um, And they also feel like that will make our country more vulnerable. So they're, They've, I don't envy them at all. Um, they're a great team. I, I know them, and um, I, I know that they're doing the best they can at, at every company, but um, I, I don't envy these decisions because you really do have to think about – you have to think 10 steps ahead because it's not just about, okay, we're going to not allow this, and here's why. In their case, they have to say, well, what do we do with this president who has millions of followers – almost every day his tweets are being put in the news. Like it's, it's a huge part of his presidency, how active he is on Twitter and, and the things he says and the threats he said, but by no means was this the worst he's ever done. I mean, he threatened nuclear war on, on Twitter. And so the fact that this is the straw that broke the camel's back is, is interesting, but there's a couple other things to point out before even you got to the looting and shooting tweets. So a few days before he had been Trump had been tweeting about Joe Scarborough and Trump was accusing him of murder and the widower of the woman who died pleaded with anyone that would listen please take this down like this is you know impacting my children and and my life and it's not true and we're having to go through all this again like there's so many real world consequences that come out of anyone tweeting but especially the higher profile the more consequences so that happened, and I think that was when Twitter was like, okay, we need to take action. The U.S.'s election was obviously interfered with in 2016. We're having another presidential election this year. Social media has been used to influence other countries' elections all over the world as well. It's not just the U.S. before and after the 2016. But um, so they, you know, because they also have to think about rules that apply across the board internationally as well. So it's not an easy job. And Um, you're having to think about what the consequences are going to be down the line. And um, in this case, they thought, well, you know, we really need to protect the integrity of elections as much as we can, as much as what's in our purview. So that includes having, uh, you know, very clear policies about interfering with elections. When he started to post that mail-in ballots are rife with fraud, which he's doing because we're looking at an election in November and probably won't be able to go to polling places in in large groups. Um, My state actually does, we only vote by mail and we have for 10 years. Um, So, and and there's a lot of, just so everyone knows, like we're not coming at this from like our own personal, I mean, granted you can probably read through the tea leaves, but our own personal political viewings, there is no facts or data. And there have been a lot of 
research and and investigations. I mean, Trump had a voter integrity task force at one time to research voter integrity, but we never heard of an outcome because they couldn't find anything. So he's you know saying this because he he doesn't want people to be able to vote by mail because I believe that he has the feeling that if people vote by mail, more Democrats will vote and less Republicans will. And Twitter just simply flagged and said that this was not true and then had a link to get more information with the actual facts. It was not an opinion. It was facts. Then when he had the looting and the shooting tweet, then they blurted out and said that it was against Twitter's policy. So, I mean, a lot of people could say that he's actually getting a lot of special attention and he's actually getting, but instead he only looks at what he sees as injustice. So that's, you know, really the real world ramifications are something that trust and safety teams have to think about. They have to think about, okay, this is going to be in the news. We, we, we can estimate. I mean, I know when I saw the first, you know, news about Twitter putting something there and it's not censorship. It's not, you know, anything against the free, uh, free speech that we have in the U.S. because Twitter is a private company. Uh, free speech only applies to public government entities and, um, so it's it's there's so many layers of this we could talk about it for five hours at least but I th- I think those are all things to kind of you know keep in mind is that um, they knew that there was going to be retribution as soon as I saw that headline I was like oh boy now we're going to see a bunch of tweets about how awful Twitter is and you know so they were able to guess what that was going to be but they chose in this moment in history to take some kind of action and I have to say that that was very brave. No, I agree with you. You know, I'm bitching a lot about Twitter. I'm going to bitch more about Facebook. I've got problems with Twitter, with the fake news, with Trump, with cancel culture, with crime that's being allowed on there, with criminal actors posting where to come get their services, with child porn, with bullying, with account takeovers, with like accounts and with fake accounts. I've got all those problems. That oh, yeah. Means- no one is no one is exempt from any of this. I legitimately don't think that there is a trust and safety team in the world or any amount of policies that could even out being able to keep everything clean and clear because there's just so many, there's millions of tweets and and posts being uploaded every second. I mean, how are you supposed to police that? Well, here's the thing. I am not, I'm bitching about that. That's right. But I want people to know that I am actually pretty happy with Twitter. I truly am. I, I use the platform. I actually found my new Twitter purpose in the last week. I, I was telling you that before we started recording the episode. Yeah, and I groaned and rolled my eyes. Yeah, I didn't even have to ask you what it was because I knew yeah. exactly what you meant. But I, I mean, you but know, happy, if it I'm makes you feel good, then it oh, does. Okay. it's it a does. lot of energy to me to do that. But it's a, it's a boatload of energy. I open and close every day with a simple tweet saying, fuck Trump is what I say. And here's the thing. You, you, you're right, except maybe not with me because I am letting my political feelings influence what I'm talking about today. I truly am. Now, that being said, my political feelings, just so that we're on this, everyone knows where I'm at. I absolutely despise both sides. But the side that's causing the most problem right now is that that orange person up there in the White House that is waging war, threatening to bring U.S. troops against the United States citizens. So much so that Jim Mattis comes out and says, hey, This guy is comparable to Nazis. Jim Mattis, one of the most respected military individuals on the planet, says this. 
So what I'm thinking is, is, and I'm hats off to Twitter for finally, for finally doing something because it harkens back to what Martin Luther King Jr. said, that the moderates, those who aren't doing anything, are more trouble than those who are doing it. That's my entire problem right now, are these groups like Facebook, Twitter, that's finally making at least some stance, Snapchat, that's not doing a damn thing as well. Well, Snapchat. What they've done is they have stopped having their algorithm highlight uh, anything that um, that Trump write, uh, writes or puts out. So I don't know how much Trump himself is actually Snapchatting. So basically, they're just not promoting them. If you go out and look for them, you can find them. But they're not. They used to be on like the discovery page or whatever it's called. I am clearly too old for Snapchat. Child <laughs> can probably tell me all about it. Just one paragraph about it says President Trump verified Snapchat account will no longer be promoted within the app after executives concluded that his tweets over the weekend promoted violence, the or promoted violence, the company said. He his account, real Donald Trump, will remain on the platform and continue to appear on search results, but he will no longer appear in the app's discover tab which promotes news publishers, elected officials, celebrities, and influences, influencers. And it just says we are not currently promoting the president's content on Snapchat's Discover platform, the company's in the statement. We will not amplify voices who incite racial violence and injustice by giving them free promotion on Discover. Racial violence and injustice have no place in our society, and we stand together with all who seek peace, love, equality, and justice in America. I am going to flip on the other side of the fence. Okay. All right. All right. I, I'm, I'm ready, and I'm because, ready. Because I do believe in hitting both sides. You were talking about Snapchat. What I have seen, what's extremely interesting to me, is that Snapchat is being, it's being used really well in order to organize these riots that are mm. going on. So, and I didn't even know this feature was on there, but you can, there's a little feature on Snapchat where you can tell where all the Snapchat users are and it shows like a, like red Mm -hmm. on the map that's concentrated. I think it's an outstanding feature, Mm. but what is, what a lot of it is being used for right now is so that these riots know exactly where it's popping off. So if someone wants Mm. to go in and be part of it, they just hit the map, click on the people that's shooting the Snapchat, Snapchat videos, sharing that everything else and see what's going on. So they know where to show up to enact violence. Can you just explain for me what you, so there's protests, there's riots, there's looting, like, you know, the protests are very peaceful and, right. and those are happening a lot. Then right. there are some outside agitators. Oh, we are going down the rabbit hole there. Oh yeah, we? it's a huge rabbit hole. And and you and I have had some texts where the outside agitators causing, you know, putting fires, you know, cop cars on fire and ruining property and stuff up here is very different than the profile of the people doing it down in Alabama as well. So I want to, you know, be aware that it's, it's different everywhere. It's, there's so many rabbit holes. There are, and it depends. (laughs) Who are you going to believe is the, is the thing. It it depends on which media you're listening to as to who's causing it. Because if you're on Twitter, this is one of the things we mentioned earlier. If you're on Twitter, there's a whole lot of people on Twitter that are saying Antifa is Mm. organizing and causing these riots. (laughs) And granted, here in the South, we are seeing people that are coming from out of the area to help that violence kick off. We are seeing that. But there was an article yesterday in Nevada there were three white supremacists mm-hmm. arrested because they were pretending to be part of this Antifa group that everyone's saying, well, not everyone, but that a lot of the Trump acolytes 
are saying, well, it's Antifa that's doing this. It's Antifa. No, right. it's not. I want people to understand that it's not that. It's the it's it's an entire oppressed people that the only language they have because they have been unheard for decades, hundreds of years actually, yeah. the only voice they've got is the voice of riots. That's what Martin Luther King talked mm -hmm. about. Nothing is more relevant now then yeah. that letter from a Birmingham jail, it explains every single thing that you need to know about what's going on. It also makes you so today. sad about how much hasn't changed since then. That's I, right. My mom was cleaning out um, a box of things and I um, used to write a lot, like letters to the editor or mm. I would write articles or um, I worked for my high school paper. Just I love to write. I still do. But, Sweet. Um, and I totally forgot that when the Rodney King beating and then the subsequent riots in LA in 1992 it was actually May of 1992 um ironically or unironically uh depending on <laughs> it. um they uh so yeah 1992 so that's like you know almost 30 years ago I was 11 for anyone who wants to do math um and <laughs> I know I'm a little younger than you I wrote a letter to the editor talking about um, Rodney King, and I, I quoted MLK, and I also quoted JFK. Um, and uh, every word that I wrote at the age of 11 about something that happened almost 30 years ago could have been written about the last few weeks. Yeah. And that made me sad. Um, but it also actually made me kind of proud that I've been having these strong feelings. And, and they not to throw my family under the bus, but they aren't because that's how I was raised. And they were very much my own thoughts. Um, to be honest, I have a close family member who we cannot be Facebook friends because we have very different opinions about things that to me are very core to who I am and, and have to do with humanity. So well, I'm sure that I'm yeah. going to lose a lot of connections with what <laughs> I'm doing, but I, I, you know what? I think I'm comfortable with that. I am too. I am too. <laughs> I totally am. I'm, I'm so okay with it. I, I would like to be on the right side of history. Yes. Do we want to even talk about Mark Zuckerberg and give him the time of day right now? <sighs> I don't know. I mean, I think he's just, kissing a lot of ass so that he doesn't have any um legal you know ramifications we can talk a, i think that it is good to talk a little bit about what the different companies are doing so we have talked about what twitter's done and what mm. snapchat's done i think it's good to talk about what facebook is doing and not doing um and and we can also talk a little bit about some of their ethos as to why they don't touch any of that stuff i think sure. i think it's good we don't need to go down detail as much but I think it is good to be fair and equal and talk about what they're doing and not doing. <laughs> sure. And, you know, I've bitched enough about it. What I would, the only thing I would like to say, other than they allow, it looks like they allow most of the stuff to just go willy nilly. But I would like to mention two things. The first is that evidently Zuckerberg sat down with some people from the NAACP and some other people that were trying to explain this concept of racism to him. And they came away flabbergasted that he had no understanding of that. Um, so that's the first thing I would like to yeah. mention. The next thing I would like to mention is that my hat is off to those Facebook employees who protested hmm. Mark Zuckerberg's position and for the, the employees who chose that, you know what? I'm not going to work here anymore because like the guy that I sent you the link to yeah. on LinkedIn. Hats off. Yeah. Hats yeah, off. Totally. To That's all I want to say. Yeah. <laughs> and I think I it's important to say that, you know, I mean, especially from your perspective, like 
you know, and you've been talking about it for longer than anyone else about, you know, perception is reality and the power of, of fake news. I, I, and I think it's really an important thing for you to talk about. I want to be careful not to, you know, burn any bridges with the people I know that work there, but I also feel like they make conscious choices to stay there. So, yeah, it's, and you know, it's, it's honestly, it's, you got it. You got to man up at some point. Yeah, totally. You know, I know. We yeah, can't, I agree. You've no, got, I agree. You've got platforms there that ha- that are wielding more power toward influencing nations than the actual governments that are of, by, and for the mm-hmm. people, supposedly. That's actually a really good point. And we, we just have to get to the point where we're saying, okay, guys, right. you know, I understand that you want freedom of speech. I understand that you want everyone to have a voice, but fake news, right. ra- racist stuff that's going on, all this stuff that's, help, that's, that's just proliferating, that's causing more and more problems. Mm-hmm. You've got to take a stance on this. Absolutely. And I mean, to be honest, the things that are being posted are inciting violence. I mean, many times we've seen... Yeah the pipe bombs being sent to democratic leaders based off of, of tweets from Trump. We've seen, you know, a lot of real world consequences. Anything you want to add to Facebook before I ask you a couple of questions about trust and safety? <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, I think what I would, yeah. Um, I think what I would say about Facebook is that they've kind of taken the stance that they don't want to police any content. They take the stance that they, and I know, I know exactly what you're going to say to this, but they take the stance that they want the individuals to um, do their own research and that they trust the people that are reading things to know right from wrong um, and true from false. Um, The problem with that is when you create an echo chamber on a social media account with the people who believe similarly to you, that's all you're hearing. And so you're not always thinking, oh, I need to check it out. I actually fell into that on Facebook last week when there was so much information coming in about so much different things. And I I posted something really quick that I had seen somewhere and then I had someone call me out and I was like, you know what, to be honest, my sources aren't that great. <laughs> right. Um, right. And, and I had to like own it. And that sucks because I was like, oh my gosh, I'm always talking about this. But it's just there was so much information coming in and I was like, oh, I want to share this with and it was like, oh, actually, that hasn't been confirmed, you know, with with everything. And so it, it's very easy to fall into that. So I think that that's why it's important that a company has, you know, some say in it. And I, I actually really applaud the way both Twitter and Snapchat are doing it because they're not just blocking them because if they were to block it, it would make it worse, right? right. Instead, they're saying we are just acknowledging that this is against our policies or we are not going to amplify. We, they have no duty to anyone to amplify it. You know, it, it's their, their own company. They are not run by the government, but Facebook's whole thing has been that they want plausible deniability. And you and I have heard this from a former Facebook employee that Absolutely. knows this. And, and I've heard it in other contexts as well, but essentially if they do anything about one specific problem, whether it be, you know, fake or, you know, very, uh, b- very wrong content, whether it be about, uh, you know, just very not true. I mean, I, it's very frustrating how facts are not true anymore and how, you know, the truth is just whatever people want to make it. But um, they're, they're not policing anything because if they do, and then a government or an entity comes to them and says, well, why didn't you take care of this one? They no longer have plausible deniability because they took care of something. Same with fake accounts, same with when they post full credit card numbers on their site, same when they are selling accounts to other online companies um, for account takeover situations. 
Um, all of those things are they, their lawyers have taken a very, you know, very strict stance that they should not be doing anything unless it violates an actual law where they will have significant financial or legal issues. Um, and, and that's it. And um, I think that, you know, Zuckerberg's decision to not police this is is frustrating to me. I'm careful not to say like I'm careful to say that because obviously you know politics is going to play a role in that decision. But I do think the way people consume news is so different now. It's not from a newspaper that that is citing sources and facts and and has you know the AP guidelines and, and all of that. It's just of anyone who wants to put it on there, and so that that does create a lot of challenges and. There are a lot of real world consequences to when anyone, whether they're the president of a country or they're just sitting in their basement somewhere, post things that incites violence, that makes people want to hurt other people in the real world. And that is where I do believe, no matter which side of the argument it is, that there is some level of responsibility. Um, I do think it should be mentioned that Peter Thiel, who is, you know, was one of the founders of PayPal and who is on the board and um, was an original investor in Facebook and Airbnb and a lot of other companies in Silicon Valley, is a, um, he does donate quite a bit of money to the Trump campaign and um, that they do uh, have, he, he does have pretty conservative views. Um, and the only other thing I would say is that I think that part of the problem for Facebook is in 2016, and I think you and I both heard this from the former um, employee that we know as well, that in 2016, prior to the election, I think it was even prior to the convention, a lot of conservative Republicans went to Facebook for a meeting and said, hey, you know, we feel like your algorithms are more skewed liberal. And so with that accusation caused Facebook to course correct so far to the other side because they wanted people to not feel like they were taking any favorites that it almost made it more favorable to um, conservative views, which oftentimes include, you know, racism, et cetera. And, and it's not all conservatives. I'm very aware that, I mean, 90% of my family is conservative. So I know it's, it's not all or nothing, but there is a new brand of conservatives now that are really dominating the conversation on social media and elsewhere. My thing with, with Facebook is again, you just got to, you mm. got to man up. Yeah. Man up. You got uh, in prison. We called it cowboy the fuck up. <laughs> Do something. <laughs> you know you're going to prison rules with zach huh yeah. Um, yeah i mean it's it's just how are you going to to just let all yeah. these issues continue because one you don't say, want to though, well right one could say that a lot of it has to do with not wanting to upset them there's a lot of revenue there with conservative yeah. ads that they don't want to mess with right um i know that that was a that has been a factor for other social media platforms including facebook but all of them you know when i've had conversations with their teams about you know his specific activity because they all have said you know yeah if he were just any person if he wasn't in his position we would have shut down his account years ago yeah um, because he is inciting violence, because they are straight out like unfounded lies. There's no truth to them. Um, there was actually a recent analysis done, um, I think by the New York Times, on just from May 24th to May 30th. They took, um, so for six days, or seven <laughs> days really, from Saturday to Saturday, they looked at 
the 139 tweets that Donald Trump put out, 26 of them contain clearly false claims, including five that were about mail-in voting fraud, uh, which cannot be backed up with with any proof, as we said. Uh, Five for false conspiracies about Joe Scarborough um, as a murderer, and three about Twitter itself. Um, twenty. So, in addition to those twenty-six that include clearly false claims, another twenty-four of them were included misleading. They lacked context, or they traded an innuendo. So, all of those things—that's fifty tweets out of one hundred and thirty-nine that would have been flagged for being against trust and safety guidelines had he been anything anyone else. So, I, I don't like the fact that we're talking. You know. I, I think last night I was like, we can't make this all about Trump. And here I am making it all about Trump. So <laughs> because you can't avoid it. You know, you can't. Yeah, avoid you it. really can't. I mean, a, a lot of this, I think, is is just highlighting it. But there is a lot to be said for the importance of trust and safety teams um, and, and how important it is. We're not just tasked with payment fraud anymore. Um, the other thing about trust and safety, too, is that they really are about enabling the business to have more sales. And so um, they're more focused on that than fraud, but fraud is definitely a part of it. So um, what they focus on instead is being able to guarantee the sales that they do put forth and say, this is, you know, we're enabling sales rather than canceling the bad ones. Um, So it's also about, you know, just the kind of internal PR of the team. But um, yeah, I, I don't envy anyone that works in social media uh, or in trust and safety for social media. I know several of them. I I don't envy them. And I actually have not reached out to them yet because there's so much else going on. <laughs> I also am trying to be like, I bet your inboxes are a little full right now. I'll reach out later. And <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Offer a virtual <laughs> hug. <laughs> well, let me ask you. So who needs a trust and safety team compared to who does not? Mm. That's a good question. Um, actually, <laughs> I had this conversation with a prospective client this past week because they currently have a fraud team and I they came to me with you know what their issues are and I said, I am actually going to recommend that you transition your fraud team to trust and safety. Um, so I think, I mean, it, it's very much a company by company decision, but generally speaking, marketplaces, those with um, real-world consequences, online gaming, um, any company that allows any kind of user-generated content, whether it's reviews, chats, um, you know, posts, etc., that's really important, um, as well as, uh, you know, marketplaces, sharing economy, posting, um, you know, like eBay, for example, or Etsy or Airbnb, all those companies have trust and safety teams. Um, it's just, it's a different lens. It's a different approach. Um, it also encompasses more. So the reason why I was explaining to this client, they came to me saying, Hey, we don't really feel like our fraud team gets a lot of buy-in on things. And we do have user generated content of some kind, whether it's chats, reviews, um, et cetera. I'm not going to narrow it down that far, but, um, contracts haven't been signed. Uh, and also I'm, I'm very big about, you know, using examples for education, but not throwing anyone under the bus or talking, you know, as you know, very well. Um, but they, you know, they're having kind of a brand issue internally, as well as they uh, were recognizing that there was a lot of activity happening on their site that no one was looking at. Um, There is no oversight, there was no visual into that. Um, I also realized that 
a couple areas of the company have made very strong decisions to not enable things, not because it wouldn't be good for commerce, but because they didn't want to get the fraud team involved or like they didn't want to, um, they wanted to really scale back and not have fraud be accessible. Um, And that's actually, you know, so I said, I, I actually believe that we can suggest you take on a little more risk with the right capabilities. So, um, it's the first time I've actually done that for a client and said, hey, I actually think that we need to transition this into more of a trust and safety thing um, because of that user-generated content, uh, content component and because there's just so much more abuse that's available, whether it's promo code abuse or collusion or money laundering, et cetera. Um, so it's not just about content. It's also just about other kinds of non-payment abuse. What does a trust and safety team consist of? Um. Uh, like I said before, it, it varies, obviously, based on what the company provides, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, so when a know. team, uh, uh, say you've got, so Airbnb is the big one, yeah. but you've got some smaller ones like VRBO and things like that, that may mm-hmm. not have a trust and safety team. So Actually, there's they- an entire podcast about the fact that couch surfing does not have a trust <laughs> and safety team and how <laughs> awful. If you want to be able to convince your company that you need a trust and safety team, listen to the podcast Verified. Um, I'm going to have a huge caveat that it is the first few episodes are brutally graphic about sexual assault that happened, um, you know, due to the couch surfing app verifying someone. And it turned out that the only way they verify an account with that little check mark is if you pay $60 on a credit card and all they're doing is verifying that your credit card worked. They don't do any kind of... <laughs> vetting of the people that are involved in it. So um, if you want a horror story, go to Verified. Um, and I'm only saying Couchsurfing name because it's all over that podcast. But I think it's episode seven. It's titled Couchsurfing. That one's really fascinating. I just discovered it recently, but um, I actually texted a friend of mine who's very big in trust and safety and has been since the beginning. And I was like, oh my gosh, you have to listen to this because I know she's as big of a nerd as I am about it. Um, so a lot of it has to do with you know vetting who's on the site. Like if you have people who are offering a service, um, especially having people come into your home or in your car or anything like that, it's important to verify the people who are, you know, posting that, right? Making sure they're not sex offenders, making sure that they are who they say they are. I mean, if murders happen or those kind of things, that's on, that could be on you, right? A liability if you said that they were verified. So, um, it's, it's serious, you know, having the consumer trust takes a lot of work. So, um, you know, verifying that the people are who they say they are and that they have the best intentions, uh, as far as you can tell, is a big component of it. Um, obviously, you know, transaction fraud is part of it as well. Um, there's the proactive strategy piece with, you know, data and uh, technology, either internal or external and working with data scientists and engineers and, and all of that, the kind of the proactive overarching piece There's usually product managers because they're working on the products that will support the team. There's usually a lot of different um, spider webs or kind of, you know, offshoots within a trust and safety hub. Um, Then there's also the reactive side with the people who are um, monitoring the content. And um, I think you've mentioned that term before. Is it cognizance at Facebook? Yes, the the, the mods. Yeah, yeah, the moderator. So that would be under trust and safety. Um, that would be more lower level. But those those people are the ones that have to see the grossest of the gross things, the things that the technology highlights. So usually technology is going to highlight, you know, 
the really bad and the really good are taken care of, right? It's just the middle ground where it's like, oh, we need some human eyes to decide context. Um, and that's really what those people are looking at. Um, everything from, you know, suicide threats to bombings to, you know, threats on the, all the things get included in that. Um, gaming platforms have to do it. All kinds of companies, you know, need to be thinking about all of these encompassing things. And the reason why they're all in one department is because they are pretty related um, within themselves, right? Um, if you don't vet the person, then they are probably more likely to commit credit card fraud, for example. Right. Um, so that would be the KYC policies, the know your customer policies. Um, and then within that, that's when it kind of goes out to your individual company, right? Are you having posts on social media? Are you having people meet in real life, um, you know, through cars or homes or, you know, uh, so many other things now. Um, those are just the first two things that come to my mind. Um, yeah, there's like even, you know, apps where you can have a masseuse come to your house or your hotel room, which I have used. But to be honest, there were two options and I chose the one where I knew the trust and safety team and I knew what some of their policies were. Because um, they're working, they're working to make sure everyone yeah. is safe and across the board. That's as safety a, issue. Yeah. As a woman inviting a male sure. masseuse to my hotel room in Boston, I wanted to make sure that it was the company that I knew took safety the serious and the most serious. And they had just happened to attend a conference I had, <laughs> I had spoken at and I had talked with them a little bit about some of the things they were working on and so I felt safer. So it's all related, but it's a very integral part of online commerce and internet commerce that a lot of people don't know about, but they really are the backbone of most of what these companies are, are able to do and how they're able to take on more risk and more users. Okay. So, and, and again, I, I guess I kind of feel like I'm an interviewer right now asking these <laughs> questions. <laughs> no, usually it's the other way around. Usually I'm interviewing you about fraud, so I'm, I'm good with it. Fire All away. Right. Okay, so here's, <laughs> here's the next thing. So we've got two different groups. You've got the customers or the, the clientele, and then you've got the company itself. So some, somehow there has to be some strategy there that either leans toward more of protecting and ensuring that the company's image and the trust within the company and the, the, their outward facing image is good and all that versus the customer. So how do you determine mm -hmm. which side of that equation you're falling more on? That is very much about the individual company. A lot of times legal is involved in those conversations um, to kind of determine what, um, you know, what's legal, what's not legal. And there's not a lot of precedent legally um, on a lot of these things. So it also has to do with like the company's ethos, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, what they view their purpose being and, and all of that. Um, I would say that a lot of times trust and safety's job is to convince the business or, or just even demonstrate to the business that what's best for the customer is usually best for the company. Okay. So um, is there any... <laughs> <laughs> is there because I know when we did this this whole we worried about trust a lot when I was a criminal and and because we have mm. people that are in, that we're interacting with each other right is there any type of experience that mm. people can get to, to prepare them for this trust and safety team <laughs> <laughs> I was I was trying to think of a really funny answer, but, you know, go look for the grossest things on YouTube. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, I think I mentioned this before in another episode, but a friend of mine recently interviewed for a position with one of the largest uh, content 
providers and, uh, you know, whether it's social media or streaming, et cetera. And uh, they were told that they would be majoring in suicides and minoring in animal abuse. And they were like, whoa, 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 whoa. I like payment fraud. Right, right. (laughs) Because it's like just a little less... (laughs) <laughs> a little less horrific. Um, and, they, and they did choose not to you know, work, uh, take that specific job. There would be other positions within trust and safety that wouldn't deal with that, but that sure. specific one. Um, I think the majority of people that are in trust and safety right now usually started in fraud um, or in customer service, but there's a lot of positions, especially in Silicon Valley area, you know, San Francisco Bay area, as well as in, you know, Europe as well and in several little pockets um, where there are a lot of people hiring for entry-level trust and safety associates. And I think that, you know, every job description is different, but I always say that the the core things that can't be taught for someone in fraud, it's very similar for trust and safety as well. Um, and that is curiosity and a sense of justice. And I would also say empathy and a desire for customer service, as well as kind of thinking about like, what is the real world impact on this? Because a lot of these things you don't want to experience the hard way. Um, You know, you really want to try to protect people from having, you know, I mean, several years ago, there were so many stories about, you know, Uber drivers and violence and and those kind of things, right? You don't want to learn that lesson by that point. Oh, we should have thought about this. Um, So it's really having to think about if you're on the policy side of it, really having to think 10 steps ahead. Um, But as far as entry level, I think a lot of trust and safety associates are, you know, usually have some kind of customer service experience, whether that's on the phones or in, you know, waiting tables or whatever. They have a um, a focus on taking care of the customer, um, but also have that curiosity and sense of justice. That's it for this episode of the Online Fraudcast. Thank you for joining us. We hope you've learned a lot. You know, we've got a lot of fraud to talk about on this show. I mean, a lot. So subscribe to the online broadcast to be alerted when a new episode is out. And please tell your friends and rate and review where you can to help others learn about these topics as well. And feel free to drop us a line to say hello. We love when we hear from you. Also, we want to hear what you love about the show, how we can improve and what topics you want to hear us discuss. You can find us at onlinefrogcast.com on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or find us individually on LinkedIn. Until next time, stay informed, stay vigilant, and stay secure. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.